Hello, and welcome to Monash University's Culture, Media, Economy Research Program. I'm Ben Eltham. Australian Cultural Policy the Next Decade was a one-day symposium held on April 8, 2019 at the State Library of Victoria. It was hosted by Monash University's Masters of Cultural and Creative Industries, where I teach, and the National Association for the Visual Arts. You can hear all the podcasts at cmemonash.org. That's cmemonash.org. This is the next in the series of podcasts that we've recorded of the entire symposium sessions. This is a speech by Bianca Beetson, a prominent Queensland artist and a member of the Queensland Art Gallery Board of Trustees. Bianca has given a speech in response to the address by the Federal Arts Spokesperson for the Labor Party, Tony Burke MP. The first voice you'll hear is that of Esther Anatolidis from the National Association for Visual Arts, and then she will introduce Bianca. Now, the artist that we have just very briefly heard from, Bianca Beetson, is going to offer us a response uh, to Tony's talk and also a sense of an artist's vision for policy for the next decade. Bianca Beetson is a Kabikabi Wiradjuri woman born in Roma in Western Queensland. She's a visual artist who works in a broad range of media, including painting, drawing, sculpture, installation, photography and public art. Bianca is a former member of the seminal Aboriginal Artists Collectives, Campfire Group and Proper Now. Bianca was recently awarded a doctorate in visual arts. She is the program leader of the Bachelor of Contemporary Australian Indigenous Art degree at the Queensland College of Art, Griffith University, and is a member of the Quagoma Board of Trustees. We're so thrilled to have her with us today. Please welcome Bianca. Before I start, I also, ooh, that's a bit loud. Uh, I've got a big voice, so I kind of have to be mindful of that. Um, before I start, I would like to acknowledge the original custodians of this land, the Wurundjeri people from the Kulin Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. I'd also like to pay my respects to my elders past and present and acknowledge those future leaders in whose footsteps I walk today and welcome everyone's ancestors who are with them here today. As Said before, my name's Bianca Beetson and I'm a proud Kabi Kabi, Gabi Gabi, Wiradji, Kuki Yalanji, and Pitta Pitta woman with Scottish, English, and Romani Gypsy heritage. I stand here today to share my vision and respond to Shadow, Minister, um, Shadow Cabinet Minister's, um, the Honourable Tony Burke's vision for the arts. Thank you, Tony. I, I sort of had this plan to do a response, but I've realised that everything I've written in our, in my sort of Vision for the future really covers everything Tony also covered. So I think I'll roll straight into that. But I actually just wanted to acknowledge um, the great work that um, Tony Burke is doing um, as Shadow Minister. And I actually think, you know, I'm, I'm feeling really hopeful that Labor will get in because, you know, it would be really great to see a lot of the vision that Tony works so passionately for be brought forward. So what I've really got, I did a little bit of research as well because, I mean, I always believe that, yes, I have all these great ideas in my head. I've been working in the industry probably for, you know, over 25 years, right across the sector from community arts to working in galleries to working in hospitals and psychiatric hospitals and prisons and education at all different levels as well as being a practising artist. Um, I come with a, a whole lot of knowledge. I talk to a lot of people 
And I thought it would be kind of interesting to also um, find out what other people think. So I did a little bit of a call out to my arts friends. Um, and I've been talking to people, you know, leading up to this. So this is some of my vision, but, you know, it's also about getting a broader idea of what our arts leaders and particularly one of the groups that I used was the Australia Council 2018 Arts Leaders um, Cohort. So they are all people that are really informed and across this. So first of all, I want to say, let's face it, we have a problem that we don't have a national federal arts policy, which, which is supported, resourced and valued and grounded in NAVA's code of practice and the cultural sovereignty of the First Nations people. It's obvious we also need funding increases across the board. But we also need, and again, more money to support Australian artists. You know, talking about equal pay and equal conditions, recognition of intellectual property rights, copyright, and really the arts being considered a worthwhile and real job. I mean, how many people have gone on to study the arts and people go, what are you really going to do? I mean, I remember getting that from my family. They regret that now. I remember. <laughs> um, but we also want an arts sector that is run and controlled by artists because I think that's really important. You know, we need our own agency and autonomy. We also want the same amount of respect that sports gets. And we want it championed by someone in the government and strong champions and strong champions in the media as well. Because I think that's the difference. Sports is, you know, the, it plays. I don't want to be us versus them. And I do know that there is a role between art and sports. I'm one of those people that often cross those boundaries, having a, a famous sporting uncle and then being asked to do jerseys and different things um, for NRL. But I won't go into that one. That one just makes me a little grumpy. Um, but we also want the, a sector that champions living artists and the living and and the and living artists of diversity. You know, women, as I've said, people with disabilities, people, you know, of colour, and um, people with different sexual orientations. Uh, but we also, you know, and we need to change this sort of um, dominance of the voice of the white middle class male who are currently seen as our voices in the arts. And then the artists you'll most often see on TV and the media love them. They drag them out and go, these are our people who speak for us, but they don't speak for me. So they are also the de demographic of our policymakers and our directors of our major cultural institutions. Current, and, and I've also found that current funding shortfalls are not only hurting and shrinking the industry, but also affects the Australian identity, which helps define who we are. The directors of our major, um, our major cultural institutions should not um, have to make decisions between cutting their programs or cutting back staff. Our institutions are already highly underfunded. And I was in a situation recently where that was a conversation that was going on, and I think that is really sad. You know, do we kind of um, have staff who you know, when, when people retire or move on, we don't fill those positions. But, or do we keep that gallery closed for six months of the year? Or do we only do 10 shows instead of 20 shows? And all these kinds of things. So it really reduces what can be done. Also, really what's important for us as First Nations people 
is a funded and supported national Indigenous arts and cultural authority. We've been talking about NIACA for some time, but one thing we need to make sure about this authority that it has agency. We've been discussing whether it is actually a government statutory body or are we an independent um, agency. But the problem with independent agencies is, is getting that authority and getting that agency that we actually need. So what does this dream policy look like beyond what I've just mentioned? First of all, it must stress equality. And I'm not sure how many people realise that, you know, so we talk about equality a lot. We throw it around all the time. But in this country, we have Indigenous artists who have no water in their communities. You know, the, the artists of Utopia, who are some of our most famous Indigenous artists in this country, they've gone for 12 months, up to two years, without water. Children, artists have been dying because of third world um, health conditions re related to having no water. And this has all been a part of the policy to move, to move people off their Aboriginal um, homelands. We also have central desert artists being um, denied access to fresh food through the use of basics cards. So if you're an artist and you're on Centrelink, soon a basic card will be affecting you as well. But with the desert, it makes it worse because, you know, they have to travel 150 kilometres to be able to get to a store to buy food at a highly, greatly inflated price. They cannot buy their own art materials. Luckily, art centres exist, which are allowing some of that to happen to keep them creating. But also, if they're studying... So one of the big situations that we've seen with the basics cards, and particularly in the education sector, is that students can't buy their textbooks. They can't buy anything they need because the only places they can use the basics cards is places like Kmart. And when are Kmart going to start bringing in academic texts? You know, I can't see that happening in a hurry. So, you know, these are things that are re realities in our country for our arts practitioners. You know, the, the artists that are showcased, that are dragged out and seen as these big international art stars that are showcased overseas, but they're not respected basic human rights. They also need access to basic health needs like dialysis. There are some improvements in that area and, and places like Sotheby's have been really important in actually sort of providing funding to get dialysis machines in communities, but they still don't have the staff to manage them. And now there's this big purple bus that's also being help, has been helping that. And, but it also often means that the artists have to move off country. And to move off country often affects the way they can practice and, and see and understand. And art also has spiritual impacts on these artists. But also, as previously mentioned, you know, for us in the city centres and, and um, less in the remote centres, we mentioned, you know, we, we keep talking about equal pay and equal rights for all artists and art workers. We want also more support for mid-career artists, funding that releases them from their day job. Because when you're a mid-career artist, it can be your make or break point. So many of us are that far off being these, the next, you know, leading artists. But we have to take on jobs, many of us in academia, just to be able to survive, to be able to support our art habit. I myself you know, have been practising for 24 years and in that time I've only gotten about, I think, $3,750 of arts funding. I've had to have a job all my life to practise my arts practice. Um, I call it support my art habit. 
And that's, you know, and, and, you know, I would absolutely, you know, adore an opportunity to be able to go, okay, for six months I'm going to take time out of my job, I'm going to make that body of work that I've been wanting to make for 10 years, but I haven't had the opportunity. So that is so important. I mean, we do have support for emerging artists, and then there's also for our arts leaders, they, you know, manage to get the, the bigger pool of the funding. So that mid-career are the very sort of um, missed point. The other issue we've seen in our city centres is the, the growing um, development in our cities, the gentrification. I was here earlier on the week and I was walking around Gertrude Street and Brunswick Street and I was so saddened to see the loss of galleries. It's probably been about 10 or 11 years since I'd been down that way and it was gallery after gallery after gallery. And I have found very few galleries and it's all these um, high-end kind of expensive shops. So what we see in the arts, and it's so common, is the artists bring people to these, to these, to these cool parts of, of, of the city. They go, like it's happened in Brisbane, in New Farm and, and the West End and a whole range of places. And they gentrify these places around the creativity that's happening there. But in that process, they drive the artists out. So developers and, and um, town planners need to think about how can we still maintain that balance between having artists living in these areas and making it affordable for them to live in these areas, but also being able to um, allow creative and making, affordable creative and making and exhibition spaces without completely killing the creativity. It's you know, pushing everybody further and further out to the suburbs and the regions I mean, I guess that's good for the regional arts when you see artists push, being pushed further and further out. But the problem is, for artists, you need to be seen. You need to be seen at the opening of a toilet. You need to be seen at the opening of everything because if you're not seen, you don't exist. And it's easily to be forgotten about because there's always another artist coming up behind you. Um, I'm an artist that worked and lived in the remote sort of regions for quite a long time and I've just moved to the city. And it's amazing, you know, the difference being back involved in that sort of inner circle um, has, has done for putting me back on that radar as an artist. Um, the other important thing is in Queensland we had an art built-in policy. So that was linked to that gentrification process that meant that a certain percentage of all our funding went into public art or creating spaces for artists. And that would be a really great thing, a national built in, arts built-in policy which allows for, for artists and the creation of creative spaces for everyone. We also need to value the arts. Um, and I think that's something that has been a really important thing. We aren't seen as being, you know, a lot, we're often seen as that sort of touchy-feely add-on thing. We're not seen as what we do as being a worthwhile career, that we don't bring something worthwhile to society. Art saves lives. I mean, I've been just working in, a, over the Christmas break, I worked in a women's pr prison on this amazing project called Listening to Country. And it was about healing in Aboriginal women who are incarcerated, who cannot connect country. And it helps, you know, we know Aboriginal people die in custody. We know Aboriginal people um, need arts as a holistic part of society, but it's also about us all. You know, I've worked in arts and health for many years and I know for sure that art saves lives. 
It gives voices to the voiceless and it acts as a mirror to society that it, and it also at times brings joy and pleasure to the broader community. And what more? We need more happiness. We need more joy and pleasure. Um, we also need in academia and, and at a higher, at a research level, um, arts-led research is being seen authentic research. We shouldn't have to keep explaining the values that we bring to the world and put it in someone else's language, like for the ARC and the ERAs. And again, the important thing of valuing art and realising that fake art harms culture. I spoke, made several applications to the Senate inquiry, and very soon, you know, for us as First Nations people, we are hoping that there will be a um, legislation around this making it, fa making it illegal to... Um, import and to appropriate Aboriginal, fake Aboriginal art. But it also works on a, an Australia level as well. There are a lot of unethical um, situations that artists are being put into, but also, um, and, and, a, and a lot of, um, best word, and, and a lot of, um, yeah, unethical and un immoral activities that, have, you know, Aboriginal arts have been, artists are being faced. And again, I wanted to talk about this notion of supported, you know, funding that allows the sector to grow. Um, and as previously mentioned, you know, it's all about funding, funding, funding. I'm not just talking about the obvious need for increase in funding that, that is required on all fronts. It's, it, it's funding that better supports NAVA's visions by legislating their code of practice. Um, it's about funding an Aboriginal-controlled Aboriginal arts industry and, as I said, an Aboriginal arts authority. And keeping places and arts centres for all Aboriginal nations. There's many... In, in South East Queensland, for instance, we have no Aboriginal arts centres at all. And um, we also need to... Oh, sorry. Um, and I also want to talk about this idea of a repatriation fund. We, need to, we, we talk a lot about um, funding towards innovation, and that seems to be where a lot of the arts funding and, and a lot of research funding is going, but we also need to think about cultural repatriation and, what is cultural, and why cultural repatriation is important, because from an Aboriginal perspective and not, a non-Aboriginal perspective, we need to be repatriating a lot of the lost arts. But one of the really important things I want to talk, talk about is a climate change policy within the arts, because there are a lot of artists in this country that soon are going to become refugees in this country, and they're going to lose their sacred sites. Um, you know, for instance, the Torres Strait Islander people, you know, climate change, their islands are sinking and disappearing. What happens to them when they've got nowhere to practice? What? And, and of course, there are issues with native title that surrounds that. So if they come and practice on the mainland, they, they need permission. They have, you know, they're relying on other people. Also, you think about the Palawa shell, shell makers, you know, people like Lola Greeno, um, who are making these beautiful um, shell jewellery. They are also being affected by climate change. And again, we talk about diversity. We need to respect the diaspora who, in this country. And we need to stop villainising people of diversity for speaking their own truth and stop, um, you know, canonising the white Australians that are speaking the truth on their behalf. You know, after all, 
You know, this is about creating an Australian cultural identity. And if you're not First Nations, you are an immigrant after all. We need to stop closing our art schools because they're too expensive to run. And we need to start showcasing their excellence. It's all about the student experience. The students need to know that, it is, that there are worthwhile careers in the arts and stop telling them, you know, what are you going to really do? We also need to look at branding opportunities for artists. Um, we stop need to thinking, you know, we stop needing here this term that all artists are wankers. Let's change that dialogue. How do we change that di dialogue? Let's not just focus on the elite. Let's focus on the worthwhile humanist work that artists do, the stuff that actually creates communities, creates sense of communities, that creates community identities. And let's not use the Trump idea of let's make arts great again. Could be an interesting campaign. We want more funded residencies, looking at international exchanges. You know, this idea of soft diplomacy keeps getting thrown around. Um, and, you know, residencies that... Residency and employment in non-arts organisations and businesses as artists, employing artists as creative thinkers. So I just wanted to sort of just drill down, just to finish off, and think about us as First Nations people, and I just wanted to share a little bit of a letter I wrote to the museums and galleries. First of all, I would like to see employment of Aboriginal people in our local museums and galleries, worthwhile employment, not just as cleaners and internships, high-level producers, curators, directors, CEOs. You know, things have changed in the last 20 years. We've got the skills now. I don't, want, I don't agree with... Aboriginal artists having to tick the black box because it limits, it limits what we have to do and it assigns notions of blackness to what we create. For once, we'd like to be able to just make art about form and colour and not Aboriginal issues all the time. It gets a bit tiring and emotionally draining. Um, we'd like to see Aboriginal people paid appropriate for copyright and consultation time. We want to see our museums and galleries culturally safe places for our mobs who use these spaces. We want Aboriginal people... To, um, so we want Aboriginal people having the ability to control how their culture, language, heritage is represented and presented, published and portrayed. We want to assert our cultural sovereignty rights. I want to see us managing our own collections and curate our own exhibitions. We get to tell our own stories and direct our own stories. I want to see more visible... Um, more visibility of Aboriginal arts and culture, language and heritage in this country, not just tokenistic representations, beyond small representations of our cultures on panels or tucked away in Darkie's Corner in one of the main national institutes. I'm tired of um, our business being assigned to the reconciliation agenda and reconciliation for Aboriginal people is still much more imposed upon us than the other way around. We should be working with reconciliation people going, this is how we want you to reconcile. We want you to include our Aboriginal art and culture in everything you do, not just because you have a rap. We, you know, we want you to understand the excellence of our work and, and display it for that reason. Um, and that goes with NAIDOC as well. I mean, how many Aboriginal... Um, how many institutions go, oh, well, we've, we've got NAIDOC coming up. Let's put Aboriginal showcase Aboriginal art and culture. We're tired of that. 
no more NAIDOC, we're sort of starting to say, no, we don't get to celebrate it ourselves anymore because we're too busy making it about everyone else. We want partnerships and joint ventures and we want to share our visions. Um, and we want to see more than consultation. We want genuine engagement. Consultation is not good enough anymore. And it's not too hard. We want our arts and culture to be visible in Australia. Everywhere we go, we want you to be able to see and be reminded whose land we are on. And sadly, we don't have our own place or places to share and celebrate our culture. We need to knock on the doors of your places and ask about, you know, will you show our work? We pay, you know, we, we need, as I said, we need our own places. We would like to see our culture respected, valued, promoted, and our people supported to lead and create and share creative and cultural practice. But the, the final thing I just wanted to, to read to you was this draft cultural statement about cultural, you know, that was created here in this building on the 13th of May. And the um, forum was a cultural sovereignty forum. We, the First Nations people, assert our fundamental rights to freely determine our social, political, economic and cultural sovereignty as custodians of our ancestral laws and customs. We draw on the legacy of our elders who ensure our cultural survival. We assert our rights to exercise our cultural rights. We assert agency and authority. By connected dynamic cultural leadership, building capacity in our communities, directing our stories, establishing cultural and spiritual values in our practice, valuing cultural resilience, advocating and lobbying, prioritising cultural autonomy, recognition of leadership, respecting diversity, and acting um, a responsibility to act with integrity within our cultural practice, building agency, I can't say it now, reciprocating, that's word, and respect for cultural protocols. But of course, we want treaty. Lest we forget, this always will and always was be, sorry, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you, Nara. Well, maybe I've got a question. Um, so, um, you know, that, uh, you covered so many ex interesting and important topics and it's sort of hard actually to, to pick out one. But I thought what was particularly important about your speech was that you insisted on diversity as well as sovereignty at the same time. And I th did you want to maybe sort of draw out the connections between those two ideas? I mean, they, they can coexist. I mean, sovereignty is acknowledgement of Aboriginal people and allowing us to have control, allowing us to have agency over what we do. And diversity is about respecting other people's voices and respecting the land. And, you know, we talk about custodianship. And we all can be custodians of this land. You know, we all 
can, and you know, if we care about this land and we care about the culture, we care about what Australia looks like, we need to take ownership. We need to stop um, damaging, killing, destroying this country because we're all in trouble. And, and you know, the way we're, our ideas of sovereignty is very much about custodianship. And, you know, that's always the thing I encourage people. That's the way we can reconcile in this country when we talk about reconciliation. It's about us, us taking on those custodial duties, um, working together. And that means respecting each other, you know, no, you know just removing lateral violence you know, from the equation as well. Yes, question down there. Sorry, just a brief one, Bianca, but you mentioned a, a draft cultural statement towards the end of the speech then on the 13th of May. Yep. What was the group making the statement? Okay, so next door in the, in the big conference room, we had a three-day cultural symposium. It was a part of Urimboy. And arts leaders and from right across all sectors of the Aboriginal arts industry, and this including ones from international, we all came and we all met and we, we broke away and we had art form discussions and cross art forms discuss discussions about what is it we want, what could a, um, what could, what does cultural sovereignty look like? Because most of us are practicing and doing it already and we don't realize we're doing it and we don't call it that. So we wanted to have a statement that we can then use and go back to our bosses and go back to our institutions that was endorsed, just like the um, statement from the, the Uluru Statement, um, that we can say this is what we, as an Aboriginal arts sector, want. You know, and it's about us reclaiming the sector, our own sector, because uh, there's a, a, a well-known artist, Richard Bell, and he talks about the idea of Aboriginal art is a white thing. And currently, you know, it is the whole Aboriginal art sector is completely owned and run and controlled by non-Indigenous people. We have no control over what happens. So how can we reclaim and take ownership and take control? Because we've also let this happen as practitioners, you know, allowed this to happen. And, and so, so the idea was bringing this big group, cross art forms, you know, there, and, and we teased it out and we spent, a small group of us spent... 15 hours in a room working through the night to come up with this, this statement and then get it endorsed by the broader community. Thanks. Thanks, Bianca. I really appreciated um, your comments and your fight as well. I, I guess I just wanted to open up to you again to possibly discuss a little more. I really appreciated your presentation around the idea of arts, arts practice and industry so much connected to culture, including country and traditions, but more broadly around um, the social and economic conditions of artists. How do you see the relationship between arts policy and broader sort of um, cultural practice, firstly, and secondly, um, just the state of uh, the working conditions for artists. Wow, that's a big one. I know. <laughs> I guess I think you were starting to talk about it, and I just wanted to yeah. sort of open it up to that yeah. again. I mean, I think there's, there, you know, there is, it's not just about, I think it's broader than arts policy in some of these situations. You know, it's about human rights policy. We actually have 
um, no actual anti-discrimination policy that's currently um, legislated in this country. It's been rolled over and it was rolled over for the Northern Territory intervention and it hasn't been rolled back. So, you know, that's allowing some terrible things to happen to our people. But, you know, and I think if they treat Aboriginal people this poorly and, you know, what's and we hear about the things that are going on in Manus Island. Um, so, there's, it's, it's broader than just the arts policy, but I also think it's not something that the, art, uh, that the arts policy shouldn't be considering. The, right, the human rights of our artists. Um, you know, they, they talk about the years of the starving artist, and I think, you know, that's the reality. They're starving us out. They, they are literally trying to starve us out as a sector. Um, but it's also, you know, even with the whole kind of education sector, and I think about how difficult our students struggle. You know, I mean, I have these, I have, I feed my own students because I know it's important to have food in their bellies. Um, so, you know, and how can you make good art when you're hungry? How can you make good art when you haven't got access to a space? I mean, I've worked on my living room table for the last 20 odd years because I haven't had a studio space and all these kinds of things. So, you know, and, and I consider I'm fairly privileged in that space. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting to sort of see how we need to be, and a lot of it has to do with bottom line funding and not expecting people to go through the public funds. You know, there's been a big push for philanthropy and, and making people go, oh, we can go to, you know, this sort of money and this sort of money and go to this public, you know. Um, and most of the time, it only, that, that money's only available if you've got um, DGR status. Artists, an individual doesn't get DGR status, you know, you have to be attached to an institution or a gallery. So it's just making it more and more and more hard and it makes a lot of artists give up because, you know, it's the starvation. They go, gosh, I really need to get a real job. I've been there on numerous occasions and I went, if I put all the energy I spent in the arts, gosh, I could have been a lawyer or something. <laughs> but, you know, I'd sell myself, so... <laughs> We give Bianca a round of applause. That really was tremendous. Uh